Welcome to the Natural Selection Presents Parenting. Welcome back listeners to The Natural Selection Presents. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we are Nick. Hello. We are Naomi. Hello. And I am also Nick. Hello. Nick, do you want to tell the listeners who we are? Oh yeah, we're The Natural Selection. And if you're tuning in for the first time this week, we're a group of taxonomists. We're bringing this podcast to you because we want to bring our passion for nature into the wild. Each week, we gather and talk about the natural world. In the first section of our podcast, we talk about nature news and interesting research from the past week. In the second section, we bring a different theme each week and how it relates to flora and fauna around the world. This week's theme is parenting. Thanks, Nick. That was great. Before we begin, though, have you guys had any exciting nature interactions this week? Yeah, every week, Nick, you, we, we talk about this, and I always think to myself a couple of days before we record, oh, I got to think of my good nature interaction this week. And every week I'm like, well, saw some pigeons. Uh, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. You know, I have not, not getting around too much, um, but I did, see some, I did see some cool birds of prey this week. And I heard that you did too, Nick. Yeah, I saw a massive bird like really big like really near me as well and I wasn't quick enough on the jaw to get a photo sadly but yeah I was at um I was at the S-Bahn which is the sort of elevated railway uh that goes in a ring around Berlin or at least one of them does um I was on my way to work so it was an ungodly hour in the morning and it was freezing cold like the river had frozen over that sort of cold because it's a raised platform uh the platform is on level with the branches from the trees next to the platform I was just sitting there waiting for my train all of a sudden this enormous bird landed in a tree opposite me uh, so I walked down the platform to try and get a bit closer to it to see what it was and try to get the general idea of what it looked like so I could figure out what it was um, and it just elegantly sat in the tree for a while and then slowly flapped its wings and flew off into the distance so I thought well, as soon as I get home I'm going to try and google what on earth I'd just seen so I did and I've narrowed it down to two birds I'm not a bird expert if that was an insect I've been boom bang on that but it was a bird, sadly, so uh, I had to narrow it down. And I think it was either a rough-legged buzzard, and that's that's what I think it might have been, or a northern goshawk. And I sort of wanted it to be a northern goshawk because apparently they're really rare. And they even had to be reintroduced into the UK, having become extinct over 100 years ago. But interestingly, the reason it might be a northern goshawk is because their populations in Berlin are thriving. And in uh, Tempelhof Park, which is this giant park which used to be an airport at the top of a hill, they apparently there's loads of them there, uh, and they're, they're quite well relative to normal numbers, especially for a city. So they're if you want to go see northern goshawks, central Berlin is one of the best places. That is so cool. I had no idea. I've I've always wanted to see a goshawk. Really? Yeah. There's the T. H. White book, the one guy who wrote Sword in the Stone, uh, called The Goshawk, and it's all about his like time trying to train a goshawk and it's like a comedy of errors throughout uh, and really it's really enjoyable um and it's made me want to see one but i don't know where to find them but now here i guess i'm in the place yeah that's really cool thanks what about you Noam? Have you seen anything cool this week no and not really like nick said i i also try to 
think about stuff or like pay extra attention when I go out for my walks but I will be honest it's been incredibly cold here so my walks have been very short and I've been very wrapped up and not really paying attention to stuff that's going on around me so no I haven't really seen much the only I did hear some parakeets being very noisy but other than that that's about it. I love that all of your stories that when you haven't seen nature always end with you really flippantly saying that you've seen an exotic bird that's not endemic to the UK. Last time you were like, yeah, I haven't really seen much. I mean, except peacocks, obviously, and parakeets. And there was that ostrich, but you know. <laughs> well, yeah, there's like parakeets all over London. Um, yeah. Once you have them pointed out to you, you will not stop seeing them or hearing them. They're very obnoxiously loud. But they, yeah, they were introduced. Um, so in a way, I feel like they're they're more of like on the common bird variety, even though they seem really exotic. The squawking, I don't mind so much, but it's the, the way that they fly that gets on under my skin. They look like they're like so the rec- most reckless birds I've ever seen in my life. They look like they're gonna get hit each other and other birds every time they go anywhere. They just like fly like, whew. you know, I can't you can't see of course the gestures that I'm making, but you can imagine. They, uh, listeners, for the benefit of you, uh, they're ridiculous gestures. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the parakeets also always seem like they're in, like, a rush. Like, wherever they need to get is, like, way more important than, like, anything else. Uh, my fun parakeet, I don't know if it's a fact, but it's something I observed, is you never see them alone. Generally, if one flies into a tree, another one will follow into that tree almost immediately. Rush around, don't like to be alone. Yeah. yeah. Why, why, why would we hate them? <laughs> Sounds like some people I know. Yeah, that's good to say. Anywho, we have important news to discuss. And I think, Nick, you wanted to not break into song, but I suppose talk about song. Yeah. So I have some super cool news. This comes from a study that was published a couple of days ago uh, this week in Science. And it's a pair of researchers, one from Oregon and one from Prague, who were looking at ways of basically taking ultrasounds of the Earth's crust at the bottom of the ocean. This poses several problems because it's not exactly mapping the bottom of the ocean itself, the ocean floor, it's mapping underneath the floor. So the sort of the densities and discontinuities in the crust itself. And to get down there, it's not really, it's really difficult. The clearest way of getting an image of the crust now is by using a blast of air. And to be honest, I'm a biologist, I'm not an oceanographer, and this is beyond my meager understanding of physics. But it allows you to take a sort of seismographic picture of a section of the Earth's crust underneath the ocean floor. We can do Earth's crust on the continents uh, because there's not a mile of water between us and it, and it's a bit easier to use different tools we have here. But getting those tools down to the bottom of the ocean isn't always the easiest. So so these researchers have figured out a way around it. And it's one of the cleverest sustainable research tools I've I've seen out there that uses something that already exists. The fin whale. We talk a lot about sperm whales and humpback whales and blue whales on this podcast and I think in general. But the fin whale is not one that I really knew much about. They're quite beautiful and they're big and they have the loudest song of any whale it's almost as loud as some large ships we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Um, I already hate them then. 
They like sing we all loud. have that one friend who sings really loudly and I who's mean, beautiful and sings loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, prima donna. Don't worry, you won't have to see them on the street or at your next dinner party. They're down there. Uh, so they sing, and these researchers have figured out a way of using the the bounce of their song to get this seismograph that they would get otherwise by using this air gun, but rather to get it from you, figuring out where the sound of the fin whale is coming from and then figure out how it's been changed by the um, Earth's crust as it bounces back because the frequencies that these whales sing at are very low and they're long enough to penetrate through the shelf of the ocean floor, which is totally crazy. I love this research where it's using something that exists already to learn something new in a way that is like beyond my ability to comprehend. I hope that was clear. Um. <laughs> wow, that is so great. And it sounds like, yeah, it's, it's such a good way to not actually to be able to research this, but without having to kind of manipulate it. Mm-hmm. I've got some research that might actually affect our listeners. Yeah, I know, right? So this is from the University of Exeter, and they have discovered that meatier meals and more playtime reduce cats' toll on wildlife. Aha. Yeah. So predation by domestic cats is a huge threat to biodiversity and obviously can also be a social problem because if people are interested in birds and the neighbor's cat is always in their garden, the birds avoid it. So these colleagues from Exeter University, what they did is they were looking at 355 domestic cats in 219 households in England's southwest. So this is based in England, famously a nation of of pet lovers. In this research, they only use cats that are already known hunters. And what they did is at first they tallied up every bird, mammal and other other animal they might have hunted uh, for seven weeks to establish a baseline for each cat so they could see how different things might affect the rate of predation by different cats. And what they found is something quite amazing. They found that providing a high meat protein diet and object play with the owners reduces predation by cats. And it was by quite an amazing amount. So households where high meat protein uh, and grain-free food was provided and a five to 10 minutes of object play was introduced they recorded decreases between 36 and 25% of the amount of animals brought home by the cats. And that's relative to controls as well and their previous records. There were other examples of what they used. Bells, famous cat bells around the, th- uh, the neck to stop cats being able to sneak up on animals, had no discernible effect. So, yeah. There was one called the bird be safe collar, which, as you can imagine, reduced the numbers of birds captured and brought home by cats by 42%, but had no discernible effect on mammals. But yeah, I thought this was quite an amazing thing. Uh, and they, they went on to say, because I, I, I don't have a cat, I, I've never owned a cat, but the, a lot of people object to using things like collars as unethical uh, on the cat itself. So they, they don't want to use them. So this is actually a really good non-invasive way to protect the wildlife around your house. And also, I imagine if you own a cat, it's probably not too fun if they keep bringing in dead mice. It's amazing to me that five to ten minutes of playtime has that much of a dramatic effect. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it's that idea of what it, what they actually found was as well is uh, other methods that people have tried often reduce the effectiveness of a cat to be able to hunt. Whereas this method, the reason it was so effective is it actually reduced the amount of times that cats wanted to hunt. So it changed their behavior rather than affected their ability to hunt. Yeah, and I think it's great because it's focusing on, you know, stimulus as well. And it's like, probably trying to improve their like well-being as well by like interacting and kind of showing improved quality of life I guess Hmm. but I should probably move on after that because Naomi you actually have some really cool news 
Yes, I was so pleased. This piece of news was so relevant to today. It was um, it was very lucky, a great coincidence. So what I found was a piece of work that was published in the Royal Society Open Science, and it was carried out in the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. And so actually what they were studying um, wasn't actually the basis of this paper, but it was sort of a sad, um, but I guess serendipitous occurrence. So the researchers were trying to look at vampire bats and vampire bat society and how they interact. So they had this captive colony of vampire bats and they had gotten them from different areas. So they were unrelated vampire bats. But what they found was there was one instance where one of the female vampire bats who just had a pup died and her pup was adopted by one of the other bats. So this was really interesting because... Um, they actually had all of this footage from before the adoption and before the death of the mother. So they're able to look at kind of the relationship between the adopted mother and the original mother and kind of look look at how this maybe affected it. So adoption in vampire bats isn't something that's uncommon. They have seen it before. Um, But in this case, they were able to show that by looking back at this previous footage, they found that actually the so the mother bath was called Lilith and she died after and left her 19 day old pup. And the pup was adopted by the, another female called BD. Um, so they found that the BD was lactating. Uh, so she started lactating on the day that Lilith died. But it, before this, they found that Lilith and BD had actually been grooming partners and they found that BD fed Lilith more than any other bat in the group. What there may be a link in this work is that they had a relationship before she adopted the pup um, and that may influence why she adopted this pup. Another interesting thing that they found was that the two fe- there was two females BD and BSCS and they were the two bats that groomed the pup the most after Lilith died. And they actually had both been previously in captivity before. So there potentially there's even a link with being in captivity and motivation towards investing in other individuals. But yeah, I thought this was really, really apt because it's about parenting, but it's actually about adoption, which is which is fascinating. And so this particular bat, BD, the one who adopted it, she was grooming as well as feeding with her milk and she was also feeding it with other blood meals as well bscs bd and lilith i know right i thought that too but then also isn't lilith the mother of demons yes so i was like is she like the not favorite because they called her lilith they they definitely want to give them all goth names i don't know why they (laughs) keep going though uh, well, thanks for that, guys. Some very informative news on a wide range of topics this week. Uh, but we'll be back after this short break to talk about our theme, which this week is parenting. Welcome back, listeners, after that short sojourn. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I know we did. But we're back because we want to talk about parenting and how different animals approach this quite unusual task. And I wanted to start with one of my favourite animals. I imagine you guys have heard of cheetahs. I don't like to play with them, but I know that they're out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're one of the more iconic animals. I think 
not, not being funny. I, I know that sounds really flippant, but there are animals which every child knows. And I feel like cheetah is one of them. It, it's sort of very much a part of the psyche around the world. And I think that can disguise the fact they're actually a very vulnerable cat. Cheetahs are the most vulnerable of the world's big cats. Compared to numbers of leopards and lions, they, they are much, much smaller. I think there's only around 10,000 in the world at the moment. So very, very, very low numbers. Part of the problem might be is that for cheetahs, motherhood is a struggle. So cheetahs are raised and reared by their mothers. Their mothers look after them until they're able to be independent. And then after they're independent, I think after a short while, they're able to become mothers themselves. But there are some staggering statistics around cheetah motherhood. Only 5% of cheetah cubs make it to adulthood. That's so, so few. Yeah, it's hardly any. And there's some even more amazing statistics on this. And this is, I was reading a long-term study from 1998, where they were looking over a period of 25 years, which is longer than the lifespan of, of any cheetah. They generally live up to about maximum 10 years, maybe slightly less. But I think the average is, is, um, is much smaller, is like two to six years. They found in this time, most cheetah mothers in the Serengeti fail to raise a single cub to adulthood. Mm. Yeah, that's quite shocking. And this means this has some weird effects on the population because you think of a population size as sort of like the breeding population. But what that actually means is the population size is very, very different to the effective population size because if none of them are having children, it doesn't really matter in the long scale conservation of them, because if they're not passing on their genes, then they're not really going to affect the next generation. And this is really odd. And and by the way, this is despite them having multiple litters. It wasn't like they weren't having litters or, or had problems. They're having multiple litters, but they still weren't raising cubs to adulthood. The average litter size, by the way, for a cheetah is 3.5 cubs. So you think, well, this is a disaster. Uh, what's going on here? Well, Cheetah cubs are particularly vulnerable. And part of the reason is that is that cheetahs usually den in a place called uh, a copia or copias. It's Afrikaans, I think. So I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced. But uh, what it is, is sort of a tall den of uh, vegetation or marshes or, you know, a rocky outcropping. Unfortunately, this is the environment which is also liked by another cat, which is lions. And cheetahs are the smallest of the big cats, especially in Africa. They don't even roar. They, they, they yelp. They're, they're not a roaring cat like you would imagine. They sort of yip and yelp. And when lions see cheetah cubs, they kill them. In fact, most cheetah cubs' death is caused by lions killing them. It's a very, very common occurrence. But there are also uh, other ways that they will die, which is things like starvation. Hyenas will also attack them. And wildfire can also overtake a, a cheetah cub. So there are many, many things stacked against them which makes what I'm about to say even more incredible because the reasons that cheetahs are here is because some of them are super mums. So while most may not raise a single child to adulthood, some cheetah mothers are incredible to the point where one mother in 2012 was estimated to have raised 10% of the cheetahs in the Serengeti. Oh my God. I know, that's an insane statistic. So the population of the Serengeti is around 300 cheetahs. So that meant that she had roughly raised 30 cheetahs into adulthood. Uh, her name was Eleanor. Go, Eleanor. I know, right? And yeah, so that's an amazing feat, the average litter size being three to four cubs. And as I mentioned, that most cheetahs that they studied didn't raise a single cub into adulthood, and she'd raised 30. And there are a few reasons for this, and it's generally just down to personality. 
and how much energy cheaters are willing to put or danger uh, they're willing to put themselves into to protect their children. Because part of the problem for a cheetah is, yeah, a hyena is bigger than you. A lion is bigger than you. So if a lion comes near your cubs, does it make sense to fight a lion when they'll just kill you and then kill your cubs? What can you do to protect them? Like what level of protection should you offer? But part of it is also maybe luck. Maybe she found like a really good den that one wasn't frequented by lions, but two meant that food was nearby. And maybe it's not luck. I mean, obviously part of motherhood is is picking that home for them. But yeah, the, if there is enough prey nearby and their den offers protection, it means that, yeah, she doesn't have to go too far and expend too much energy and can bring back and, yeah, produce milk for her young. But yeah, to be considered a super mum, I think uh, some were considered super mums just for raising five children to adulthood. So again, 30 really shows you uh, what she'd achieved. But again, part of the problem is as well is space. Because human beings are taking up more and more space, cheetahs and lions are pushed into less and less space together. And it means they're much more likely to interact and overlap. And if they like the same sort of environment, it means there's less places for cheetahs to hide, which yeah means that, again, human beings are probably having quite an unfortunate impact to the point where the Asiatic cheetah is all but extinct. Also, I've heard that they're having problems because their diversity was so dramatically reduced, like their genetic diversity got so is is very low because their population numbers got so low so that's causing problems as well reading this it wouldn't surprise me that yeah if their uh, survival strategy is reliant on hyper successful mothers as opposed to like a broader uh, spectrum of families if there is a population dip this could cause big big problems i imagine so from one of the fastest animals i can imagine to one that i generally imagine meanders about Naomi, you want to talk about something completely different Yes, so I decided to look up seahorses. And I think maybe you will agree with me that a classic example when you think about parenting in the animal kingdom and something that's maybe considered to be unusual is seahorses because the male is the one who is pregnant. And so this isn't just seahorses, this is all the other fish within this family. So the seahorses belong to the Synathidae family of fish. So that includes seahorses, pipefish, and sea dragons. And so seahorse males have a pouch on their abdomen region and in in sea dragons they attach the eggs to their tail and in pipefish it's either on their abdomen or on their tail depending on the species. But it's, it's a really cool example of the males being the one who provides more care than the female and which isn't hugely uncommon in fish. In one piece of research I was reading there is only about 30% of fish families where they show parental care. And in this, male care only is more common than female care. So even though this is maybe given as an example of something that's very unusual among fish, providing a little bit of extra care for the males isn't wholly uncommon. So seahorses, when they mate, they have this courtship behavior where they intertwine their tails and they swim together and they engage in a courtship dance. And they do daily pre-dawn dances until uh, they have their true courtship dance. And this can last as long as about eight hours. And then the female deposits their eggs in the male's pouch. And so just to clarify something that we touched on last week in our other episode, in biology, the way sex is classified is based on the gametes. So the one with the egg is the female and the one with the sperm is the male. And so that in this case, that's why the, the male is the one who carries the eggs Another piece of research that I found that, so in order to hold on to the eggs, they have a specialized pouch and it allows airflow 
and air exchange, which is really important. They also found in uh, one particular piece of research, they found that they undergo a lot of genetic changes when they're developing this pouch. And they found that actually some of the genes that they have are very similar to what other viviparous animals have, which I thought was really cool that they that there's these similarities across a completely different way of doing it because a lot of the time it's the gestation occurs in the female reproductive tract and this is not the case for seahorses. In my ongoing rage against how we name animals, seahorses, technically not a horse, is that right? Uh, hold on, um, I don't think so, no, they're distant, distant relatives, but no, not horses, <laughs> really distant. I suppose, yeah, that's quite an amazing thing, especially as you mentioned that it's much more common for fathers to take a role in in parental care in in fish. And I suppose that does make sense if they're both releasing their ingredients, for want of a better word, externally. So there's neither of them has this responsibility to care for it intrinsically. But seahorses have evolved a way to do this, but with the males, which is quite amazing. Mm. Yeah, what you touched on there as well is something interesting that they do find this relationship between when there's external fertilization and when there's male care, because you can be sure that they're yours because you've you've been there the whole time. Also, there's overlaps in, in when a male is also defending a territory. It can be easy for them to defend the, the eggs as well because they just happen to be there. So there's kind of some of the things they think, the theories as to why they overlap. And it, fish are a group that they often use when they're looking at the development of parental care because they have so many different strategies and also because they can kind of look at it in, in this way, depending on the different strategies and how these parental care may have evolved. That's great. Awesome. Now, Nick, you are about to talk about something that I know nothing about. So elucidate me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know much about amphibians either, but now I know a bit more about how they take care of their babies. So we were talking earlier about monoparental care in seahorses and how it's the opposite of what most mammals do. So all mammals have maternal care and 5% of mammals apparently have biparental care. There are no mammals documented that have father only parental care. In amphibians, this split is a little bit different. About half and half that raise their children are raised by mothers and the other half by fathers. But don't get confused because most amphibians don't raise their children. We're starting at a, a much smaller baseline where all mammals raise their children. Most amphibians don't. So only about 6% of frogs and toads and about 18% of salamanders have any sort of parental care at all. The rest just leave their eggs and go. But of the ones that do take care of their children, it's uncommon for biparental care to happen, but mother or father parental care can take many different forms. So there's egg attendance, which I'll, I'll just go through this list quickly because there's a couple that I want to talk about, a couple of specifics. But egg attendance is where they're caring for the eggs, but then don't do anything past that. Egg transport is common in the midwife toads, where the males will tie the string of eggs around their legs and carry them until they've hatched. Tadpole attendance, where they care for the young in the water. And then tadpole transport, moving the tadpoles around. I'll get into that in just a moment. Tadpole feeding, where they're actually bringing food and caring for them that way. And then finally, internal gestation in the oviduct. And then that results in ovovivipary. I think that I'm saying that word right. But where they hatch the eggs inside the oviduct and give birth to live young. 
which is considered a form of parental care in uh, amphibians. So of these groups, these many different types of parental care can take many different forms. And some of the more interesting uh, is what I chose to focus on this week. And I want to bring to you some interesting species, some cool selections of the amphibians. So we have the pouched frog, Asa darling Tony. And you guessed it, they have pouches. The males have pouches along the lateral side of their bodies, so they keep eggs in their little pouches. Similarly, the Gastroteca genus has many different, especially up to 75 species of frog, and they have what are commonly known as the marsupial frogs, which also have pouches and they keep their eggs there, but these are the female, the mothers, the females in this case. And in this species, if you look up pictures of marsupial frog, especially the pygmy marsupial frog, you'll get some amazing photos where the frogs are teeny tiny and the eggs that they have in the skin of their back, like in these little pouches, are as big as their eyes, which are bigger than their heads. So they have like these enormous eyes and then the enormous eggs, and there's about six of them because that's all they can fit on their backs. So it really looks like they've got like a big backpack for their camping trip, but they're carrying six babies. I think they're pretty cool looking. Give them a Google. Two species you've probably heard of in the Rio Batrachis genus gestate their eggs in their stomach. Have you guys heard of this one? It's one of the like weirdest animal, I think, parental care types ever. They swallow the eggs after immediately after they've been hatched and fertilized, and then the tadpoles hatch inside the stomach of the parent. Wild. Do they vomit babies? Yeah, they vomit cool. babies. That's okay. exactly right. Mm-hmm. And usually it's babies who vomit. So you don't have a vessel there. Interestingly, they some of these one species actually the, the tadpoles hatch and continue to spend some time in the stomach, but also go out to do things. This is the um, Rio Batrachis, the stomach just the gestating frogs. You can see them. There's like a, the tadpoles and the big frog, uh, and then all of a sudden the frog will open its mouth and the tadpoles will run into its mouth. And then the frog will carry on with all the tadpoles safe inside. The last one I want to talk about is the grossest animal of the animal kingdom, the common Suriname toad, Pipa Pipa. And I'll let you look up pictures of this one, but only if you don't have active tryptophobia. This is the species of frog. It's very flat. It has a broad back and it has holes in its back that it stores its tadpole, its eggs and then tadpoles in to keep them safe. It's the grossest thing I've ever seen. Okay, that's all for amphibians. Thanks for coming. You know how, like, things evolve? I mean, you guys do. We studied it. <laughs> and if you didn't at this point, I don't know why you're on this podcast. But, look, if you want to be on this podcast anyway, you just have to accept that things evolve. All right, guys? My point on this is, how do you evolve to eat your babies? There's no middle ground there. Was one mother just eating her babies, and then they, like, came out again? She was like, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> Better give him a name. Yeah, Nick, it's hard to see a, it's hard to see an intermediate step there. Wow, yeah. And then for that to be common behavior across a species that doesn't have, you know, you, they don't teach their babies how to do that. Yeah. So that's just got to be a natural impulse. Hmm, look at those eggs that I just laid. <laughs> well, there is mouth brooding, brooding in fish, isn't there? So maybe it's like... Mount bruising gone awry and then okay again. Ah. But 
I want to talk about something that I knew you guys wouldn't go anywhere near, which is insects. So insects are not really known for being great parents. They, uh, there's some amazing examples. Some species of stick insects, for example, just lay eggs as they're walking along and just leave them behind as if, you know, like, you know how you see some people just like drop cigarette ends. That, that's how stick insects drop their eggs. They just don't even look back. Just, just keep walking. <laughs> so like that's the level of parental care some get. And you can see this is quite obvious. Some, some will go to like more effort where they'll actually try and lay their eggs somewhere protected. You'll quite often see that with butterflies where they might. Some butterflies will go to lengths to sort of lay their eggs on maybe a plant that offers protection for the eggs or even sometimes a plant which the caterpillar can specifically eat. So it offers them an immediate meal. And you think that's quite a level of parental care. And even close relatives of insects are famously much better. I imagine you guys have seen pictures of scorpion mothers with hundreds of scorpions on their back. Yes, yeah, so scorpions can be quite good mothers. Amazingly, I learned from this is when you see these giant scorpions with um, their babies on their back, they're sort of translucent babies, is that baby scorpions don't have to eat until they're sufficient to hunt. There's enough nutrients from their eggs that, yeah, until they can hunt by themselves, the mother doesn't actually have to feed them. She just has to look after them which is probably why they can have such large broods attached to them. But quite often, yeah, uh, if she dies, the babies will eat her, things like that. So yeah, scorpions, they're, they're actually really, really good mothers and quite famous for it. Many, many species will look after their, their, their brood. But in the insect world, the, perhaps the queen of all mothers is one insect that gets very unfairly maligned, the earwig. How do you guys feel about earwigs? Honestly, I don't know much about them. I really don't like them. Uh, and why is that? I, they really freak me out. Yeah, they're quite inoffensive, really, though, as insects go. I mean, I, I know what you mean. A lot of people find them freaky. I remember being told when I was young the reason they're called earwigs is because they will crawl inside your ear and live there. Earwigs, do you know where they get their name? No. It's those pincers on the back. It's nothing to do with them climbing in your ears. Is that They look like the instrument that is used to pierce ears. Yeah, it's nothing to do with them sort of invading our brains. It's to do with they look like uh, they could pierce our ears with their, with their bum, which is a great reason to be given a name. But they show a lot of parental care and there's been some amazing, amazing studies. So there's one research that shows that earwig mothers can sense the presence of dangerous pathogens in the environment and will increase their level of parental care relating to that. So one thing they will do is they will obsessively clean the eggs. Like I said, many insects just lay their eggs and leave. These guys will hang around and clean their eggs until they are hatched. And they'll be quite obsessive about this. And the dirtier they are, the more they clean. And especially if there's a, a pathogenic fungus or something like that around, they will go to great lengths. They will also spend months looking over them without food, all while providing food to their children, again, which is a great detriment to the mother. But yeah, so why m many things don't bother. They just sort of lay a lot of eggs and hope for the best. These guys will stick around and make sure that they, until the second molt, they will feed and care for them. And then after that, after the second molt, they're on their own, I understand. Wow. And if anything happens to them in this time, again, uh, it's quite common that the nymphs will just eat the adult. So, uh, yeah, even if she can't provide food in that way, she will eventually give them give them a meal. And another thing they'll do is if the nest is threatened, she will move the entire nest rather than abandoning it. She will build a new one. So, yeah, next time you see uh, earwigs, show a little respect. Yeah? They're trying their hardest. I will, but from a distance. Do you know what they use their little pincers for? No, actually. Wrestling. Ah. Oh. Yeah, the pincers for the males are curved and they use them to grab onto each other in courtship fights and sort of like try and flick them. 
But the females are bigger than the males and they have flat pincers. That's how you can tell which is a lady and which is a male is whether they have curved or flat pincers. And if they use them in a fight, they essentially act like scissors. So the females are actually much more dangerous to fight than the males. But yeah, that's one way to look after eggs. But Nick, you found a rather unexpected animal who takes a rather different route. That's right, Nick. I looked at one of the, one of the mammal species that lays eggs because I thought, okay, if all mammals have parental care, what do they do when they have eggs? So I looked at the platypus, one of the weirder of our animal relatives, found out some things that I, I didn't know. And I'm going to just guide you guys through these new, these new things I learned about one of our relatives. Platypus, as you know, lay eggs. But outside of the mating season, they usually live in a simple burrow in the ground. And the entrance is usually about a foot or 30 centimeters above the water level. After they mate, the male, you know, takes off, but the female takes care of the babies. And what she does is she constructs a deeper and more elaborate burrow up to 65 feet or 20 meters long. Along the way, she blocks it with plugs that are maybe, it's not sure exactly what their purpose is, but they might keep water out if it floods or predators or as a way of regulating temperature and humidity in the den. But basically she makes a little like, a nest. She makes a nest for herself um, with a very long entrance and she gets down in there and basically like curls up with her baby eggs and after they've hatched the newborn platypuses or the unofficial term platypups are vulnerable, blind and hairless. And the way the female feeds them, as we know, uh, the platypus doesn't have mammary glands, but instead she oozes milk out of pores in her abdomen like sweat. And uh, it runs in grooves along the abdomen where the young can eat it, even though they have beaks and teeth at this stage. And they suckle for three to four months, during which time the mother only leaves the burrow for short periods to get food. When she goes out, she often goes into the water because they are semi-aquatic. And when she comes back, in order to keep the burrow dry, she squeezes past these plugs, these entrances she's made, the sort of like obstacles all along the tunnel length. And it squeezes water out of her coat so that by the time she gets back to her, the central den, she's all dry. So after about five weeks, the mother will begin to spend more time away from her young after five weeks after they've weaned. And then at around four months, they come out of the burrow. So it doesn't take too long before they're ready to come out. But I thought that this whole process of like, okay, you live one way during the year, but then when you're ready to have babies, you make this huge long burrow, and then you take care of the eggs and then the babies when they really can't do anything. And then finally, you bring food for them back uh, once they are weaned off the milk. And then eventually they come out into the world. And I can't imagine as a tiny platypus walking down the long hall towards the light there must be a whole thing like, go to the light, go to the light. Uh, but then in the end, they're out in the big wide world and they can live as platypuses do. My favorite thing that I learned is was platypups, if that wasn't clear. Yeah, I, I particularly enjoyed that. That was, that was good. I mean, platypus is quite a left field choice. I was, I was, I was in awe that you, uh, you chose that. I can't imagine how you, you came across that research, but thank you for doing so. That was really amazing. But Naomi, you perhaps want to talk about my favourite naked animal. Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about naked mole rats because they do some really interesting things. Their scientific name is Heterocephalus glaber, and they are one of two eusocial mammals. And what I mean by that is they have a similar sort of 
high classification of sociality like Hymenopter do. So you, you may remember this from our previous episode when we talked about bees, ants, wasps, and sawflies. And basically, that means that their society is organized in a particular way. And it means that there's a division of reproduction and labor. And so there is one reproducing female. Uh, she's referred to as a queen. And there are one to three breeding males. So the breeding female is morphologically different from the rest of the subordinate females. And she often displays aggressive behaviors toward the other females in the colony. So the workers dig all day to bring her food. So they feed on tubers and different things like that in the ground, different roots in the ground. And it's good because the queen, she could produce up to 27 pups at a time and she can give birth four or five times a year. So, you know, she's pretty busy um, making new naked mole rat pups. Um, and so the, the non-dominant females have their, their hormones are suppressed. So they remain in this sort of prepubescent state until they need to have a new dominant female. So if the dominant female dies or is leaves the nest for some reason, the females will fight to decide who's the most dominant one, and then the dominant female will become sexually mature. Interestingly, I mentioned they're one of two eusocial mammals. So the second is another mole rat, the Dameraland mole rat, and they also show eusociality. But interestingly, there's been research done that suggests that actually the females in this species aren't har- being hormonally suppressed. They just don't have babies from choice. And so even though the queen is the one who produced all the babies, the other workers and other members in, in the, the group will look after the young. So this is the cooperative parenting behavior. So this is why I wanted to talk about it. But there's some interesting things that I found, and I will say they involve eating poop. One thing that they do in order to help the pups is they allocoprophagy and this is where they feed the pups feces from other members of the colony and the reason this is useful is because what they eat is very difficult to digest because they eat really high fiber food so they eat tubers and vegetables and it's very high fiber so it helps them get an inoculation of microfauna and it helps the pups be able to digest their food better and also helps them get nutrients. And so these subordinates look after the pups. They have behaviors such as huddling, grooming, moving them from the nest and feeding them. And so there was a particular paper that I looked at in that was produced in PNAS a couple of years ago. And it was looking at the physiology of why this might happen. And they found some interesting things about the hormonal changes in these females. So there's some clues that they're having hormonal changes, but because they're not actually physically having pups it couldn't be because of pregnancy so they found that subordinate females seem to get increased amounts of estradiol from eating the feces of the pregnant queen Um, and this improves their responsiveness to pups and improves their care for the pups so this is really interesting that through hormonal signaling from the queen through her feces it improves the care that the other members of the group give to the pups. And they were able to work out that it was estradiol because they added it to non-pregnant queen feces and then fed the subordinates that. So they were able to prove what it was in the, or at least give an indication that this may be what it is. OK, 
can I add to the list of favourite things you've ever said was the phrase non-pregnant queen faeces. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Yeah, I, I thought that naked mole rats would be an interesting choice because they have these really weird behavior for mammals because, you know, parenting is kind of a common thing in mammals and aloe care is sometimes seen in mammals. But I thought it was interesting because they're eusocial. So I thought I'd talk about them. And then somehow everything seemed to be about poop and feces. So. Always is with you, Naomi. Always is. I know. Um, what I thought was quite interesting is that you mentioned that they sort of have a hierarchy where they're not all mating, uh, which really surprised me because they're always naked. But funny as well, um, so this isn't something that I looked up particularly, but it's something that I came across a couple of times. They have some really interesting biology, so I won't go into it too much because it's not relevant to today's topic, but like they live really long and also they have like some they seem to be able to like avoid certain cancers and um, so y- yeah that's not I was gonna say like I can't yeah I can't think how I was gonna phrase it or how I saw it phrased but yeah they they seem to be able to avoid cancer yeah I'd heard that that despite mm-hmm. being naked or having exposed skin and yeah uh having put which might lead to it being more likely to get things like skin cancer. Yeah, they just don't get it. Well, brilliant. Thanks, guys. That does bring us to the end of the episode. But we will be back next week where our theme will be danger. That's the only time I'll say danger like that. I'm so sorry, guys. I expect that is not true. (laughs) I do want to make a very brief note, a little disclaimer, if you will. Despite what we've just spent the last 45 minutes talking about, we know nothing about parenting. Please do not rely on us for parenting advice. (laughs) Inhumans. Don't eat your babies. Don't eat your babies, please. (laughs) Unless, what if our listeners are frogs? In which case, maybe eat your babies. Eat your babies. (laughs) Yeah. Um... Um, but yeah, thank you guys for listening and um, thank you too for, for bringing such wonderful information. But um, until next week, it's goodbye. 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 How are you going to go from your wig's platypus? Oh my god, that, I was looking at that and being like, well, from one thing with a silly name. <laughs>